0: Welcome back, heads. I'm Alex, joined by Dave for another episode from the vault, WP from the vault, episode three, volume three. Dave, we're talking about a show from 1985 in Cincinnati, Ohio.
1: From June of 85, summer's not over here. I know the calendar says September. I know some people, depending on where you're from or or who you are, are ready for spooky season not me i'm a big fall doesn't start till the calendar says first day of autumn like end of september yep so for me it's it's still the summer and so doing a show from summer 85 was was good there are two reasons i wanted to talk about this show but i'll dive into me before after you dive into you. What, what were your high level thoughts about this show?
0: Well, um, first of all, I agree with you. It's it's hard to feel like fall when it still feels like summer down here in the Carolinas. It is hot down here.
1: And everywhere, dude. I just talked to my parents. They said it was 90 degrees and sunny up in New York over the weekend. So that would be September 9th. Like that is hot for up there.
0: Yeah, it's usually by then starting to get into those high 70s, beautiful fall days. So that is quite surprising. Yeah, it's been a steamy year. It makes me worried about what this winter is going to be like. I feel like the other shoe might hit us pretty hard. Um, But in any case, um, yeah, I was just listening to this show. I listened back to it earlier today because I knew we were going to be re-releasing it. We were diving into it from the vault. And I thought this was a really fun episode. This was our first fan request. You told me that when you said that you wanted to do it. um, And I'll let you get into that a little bit. But I'm really glad that a fan suggested that we talk about this show because I'm not sure... When we would have discovered it, if not. And 85 is kind of a weird year in Grateful Dead history. I think just because it's the year preceding Jerry's diabetic coma. And so, you know, there's a reason why there have not been very many official releases from 85. It's, you know, a bit of an Mm -hmm. uneven year. Although, if you were on the road seeing shows in 85, I think that you disagreed. And you laid out a really great theory about why in this episode. So, a little teaser of what's to come. So yeah, this uh, this re-release from April 26th of 2022, it's a blast from the past in a lot of ways.
1: It's kind of funny how we're talking about prepping for the Dead & Company 2022 summer tour in that episode. So yeah, that was fun to to listen to again. Yeah, the two reasons I wanted to talk about, you already hit on one of them. It was our first ever fan submission. So shout out to Devin Murphy for, you know I guess, being with us from the very beginning and submitting it early on and you know for those newer to the program who haven't been with us from the beginning when we only did these long form episodes like we have a plan kind of mapped out but that doesn't mean we don't want your input and your submissions of shows that you have enjoyed so when we tell you to get in touch with us like please do we we genuinely do take that seriously and then the second reason I wanted to do it uh Cincinnati is kind of the home away from home of jimmy buffett who just passed uh last week and so it kind of felt fitting to you know honor him and i mean it's as tangential as possible but to still kind of give him a shout out which we do in in the episode so stay tuned for that
0: yeah i forgot i had completely forgotten about that and even you and i had talked about that because you almost went to cincinnati last week and you mentioned the jimmy buffett of it all And even still, I had kind of lost track of that tidbit in my mind of like him and Riverbend and kind of his connection to this venue until I was just re-listening to this episode and was like, oh yeah, Dave told me about that last week and now here we go. So that is kind of cool. I think it's also, you're right. It's so strange to listen to us talking about like, oh, 2022, Rolling Stone said it's going to be the last Dead & Co tour. And, you know, maybe it will be, maybe it won't be, but we're going to be excited to go to shows. And like all of the shows that we've been to since then, and all that has happened in the time since then, the fact that it has been the end of Dead & Co just a year later. And now we're living in this post-Dead Co space where um, it's like, who knows what's going to kind of come next for these guys. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of fun to to listen back how naive we were
1: <laughs> simple times and a just simply awesome show. Like, like you said, I don't know. We would have found this man. I, I don't know what would have brought us to stumble upon this, but what a, what a great eclectic and powerful set list. I mean, including the Big flashing light of like the cryptical envelopment revival, but from the jump with that Alabama getaway, just an awesome show,
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, with a tiny bit of further ado, we'll let you hear this episode from our vault, as as I said again, released on April 26, 2022. Um, so one scheduling note about what we're going to be doing next. So, this episode is coming out on September 12th, two weeks from now, which will be. The 26th of September, we're going to release our album review album episode and 30 on Oxo Um, That is, you know, as promised. So we're going to be talking about St. Stephen and um, Dupree's Diamond Blues, etc. cetera. Uh, China Cat. Oh, yeah. Yep. Some, some classics on that album. Um, and then two weeks after that on, I believe that will be the tw- 10th of October, we are Going to talk about the very famous, potentially infamous Lake Acid show at Lake Placid, New York, in October of 1983. That'll be three days before the 40th anniversary of that show. So, Dave and I are going to go back with a a classic, uh, you know, our classic format with a full length episode about that great show. So, we're really excited to talk about those as our upcoming two episodes and what the future holds after that When when we'll be back with the next episode, we'll address that. And we'll talk about it with you guys as we go, because as I, as I've said, and as you might be tired of hearing about Dave and I are both moving, we're both changing jobs. There's a lot of stuff going on for us right now, but we wanted to drop back into, into this feed to keep some content coming for you guys. Um, hope that you're all enjoying your summer and early fall. Uh, any other notes, Dave, before we kick it to the episode, I got nothing. Let's do it. Let's do it. This is WP from The Vault, Volume 3, our episode talking about The Grateful Dead, live at the Riverbend Music Center on June 24th, 1985. Dave. Alex. We're back.
1: On a cool little date inverse show from 624 coming to you on 426.
0: Oh yeah, there you go. That's true. Uh, a little bit of inside baseball. We are recording this a couple weeks early. I on 426 am going to be across the pond in honor of Europe 72. No, uh, my <laughs> wife and I are taking a, <laughs> a long overdue honeymoon which was delayed because of COVID. And so we're we're traveling. So Dave and I recorded this one early so that we could get it up uh, two weeks after our last episode. So yeah, here we are. As, as you said, Dave, this show that we're going to talk about today from 6-24-85, June 24th at the Riverbend Music Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's... This is our first dip into the '80s. We have a Brent show from the '90s, from like his, you know, seven months of playing in the band in the '90s. But this is our first taste of '80s Dead, and it's a whole different palette. That '90s show and this show, it's it's not. It's literally night and day. So I guess we should say uh, off the rip that this this show was recommended to us by Devin Murphy.
1: Devin Murphy is at Papa Murph 76.
0: Okay. Papa Murph 76. Well, the reason the way that he recommended this one to us is that we, when we were posting about our second episode about Dave's Picks, volume 41, Devin reached out to us on Instagram and said, and I quote, check out 62485 from Cincinnati. Interesting connection to the episode about 101268. It's one of the 85 shows where cryptical envelopment is featured. So Devin asked, we were happy to oblige. We were already, you know, kind of looking for shows from the eighties to intersperse same with shows from the sixties or shows from the nineties, because we don't want to be an exclusively seventies dead podcast. Um, so we got that recommendation from him and we basically said, say, say no more, we'll do it. So we are happy to be talking about it. And that that was kind of the, I mean, I guess that's a little bit of a spoiler. You've got a cryptical coming in this show. Before I even like kind of really set the stage, let's just talk about that cryptical experience because um, I know I've said this like three episodes in a row, but our our guy, Grateful Seconds, is going to be on this show in, a, <laughs> in like a month. Um, and he, I, I in preparing for this episode, I read a, a couple of great articles that he wrote about 80s dead. And one of them was about the fact that he was actually at the show where they brought Cryptical back for the first time in, I think, 12 years. The, the last time that Cryptical Envelopment had been played before June of 1985 was September, September 23rd, 1972. And then after 12, almost 13 years, they brought it back on June 16th, 1985 at the Greek Theater and what was interesting to me, and I'm going to be excited to talk to Grateful Seconds about this, that he lists all of these shows that he was at where they brought back a song after it had not been played in a really long time. So he was at the show that we're going to talk to him about in a couple of weeks, 6 uh, 6976, where they brought back St. Stephen, which had not been played for four years, and High Time, which hadn't been played for five years. He was at a show later on that same week or maybe the next week where they brought back Comes a Time after three years off. He was at a show in '81 where they brought back me and Bobby McGee, another big boss man, another the Eleven, all after six plus years. He was at the show in '81 where they brought back Darkstar for the first time in two years. Um, he saw them bring back Hard to Handle and in the Midnight Hour, both after ten plus years off, and Mind Left Body Jam after eight years. So this dude,
1: he just he resurrects things like. <laughs> What is this look?
0: It's crazy. He just, I I was reading this article of his, and again, I'll put it in the show notes, but I was just like, what are the freaking chances? That's crazy. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe we should try to bring him to a Dead and Company show with us this summer and see if we can get a bid you good (laughs) night. Yeah. On that note, Dave, let's get into the days between.
1: Hit it.
2: There were days. There
0: were days. There were days. All right. So the days between, it's been a while since we recorded, actually. it It's, I mean, this is the first episode we've put out in two weeks uh, after we had four straight weeks with an episode going live, but we had recorded those a little while ago because of our schedules. Uh, we were both traveling. Uh, I had a house guest. And so we just kind of made made do with what we had. In that time, the Dead & Company summer tour of 2022 was announced. Tickets went on sale. Rolling Stone announced that the Dead & Company experience was ending. Everyone in Dead & Company came out and said no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and now here we are. Now we're recording. Um, We don't really need to get into that Rolling Stone part because that's going to be kind of stale news by the time this comes out. But kind of a shared days between you and I will be going to at least a couple shows this summer. And for me, one of them, the first one I'm going to be going to is at the venue that we're going to be talking about today, the Riverbend Music Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. So
1: I'm pumped. It's just so fitting and so perfect that you're going to be there on a random Wednesday in Cincinnati. It's
0: true. Uh, Actually, on June 22nd, 2022. So almost to the day of this show. Yeah. So I'll, wow. I'll be getting a real good sense of what people were experiencing weather-wise in Cincinnati in, in 1985. Uh, and then I'm also going to be going to the Hartford show with my family who lives in Connecticut. We're going to make it a whole family outing, which should be fun. And then you and I are going to go to the shows at City Field in New York.
1: Yep, definitely confirmed for me to go to city both Friday and Saturday, and then still up in the air trying to get to SPAC, uh, the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, the day after you're in Hartford on July 6th, and then thinking about Sunday the 10th um, with Uncle Kyle and the gang in Philadelphia. um, Because they say you never miss a Sunday show. Uh, That's what I've heard. But I can also say you never miss a show with Uncle Kyle um, because it's a great time.
0: I mean, I've never been to a show with Uncle Kyle and I even agree with that. So yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. I Hopefully we'll get to go to a lot. Whether or not this is the last Dead & Company tour, I mean, it really doesn't matter. I'm just excited to see them as many times as I can this summer. Same. Uh, you know, you and I also have a couple of other shows coming up. Uh, you will have been to two uh, concerts, I think, before this show comes. No, you will be maybe going to a show this night, right?
1: I'll be going this weekend. I'll be seeing... I'll be being a roadie for the first time in my life. I'll be seeing the same band in two different States on back-to-back nights. I'll see goose in North Charleston on the 28th and goose in Asheville, North Carolina on the 29th.
0: That's rad. Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited though for dead and company this summer. I know that probably some of our listeners, maybe they haven't dove deep on, on dead and co maybe it's not your speed. It's not your style, but I would really recommend Checking out some of the highlights from last year, from 2021. Um, A couple just off the top of my head. Find the Morning Dew from Philly. Awesome. Find maybe um, the Terrapin from Red Rocks. Really the entire second set from Wrigley, the second night that they were there, which I think was 9-16-2021. They come out of space into a help slip Franklin, which is crazy. They open with an Althea that night. I mean, that, that night was awesome. And really, I mean, they, I just, I feel like 2021 was the best they've ever played as a band. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Go see them. Cause they're, they're a good time. Yeah.
0: And you might, I mean, you never know with this, with these people, when you're going to get a, you know, a night or a moment of musical excellence, yeah. but you know, there's going to be a, at least one moment while you're at the show where you're like, hell yeah, I'm so glad I'm here. <laughs> So if you have not made a point of seeing uh dead and co and I know there are some people who are like, Oh, I'd rather see J rad or, you know, dark star orchestra, whatever. That's all well and good. There are still three living members of the grateful dead touring together. Get out and see him. If you have a chance. All right. So let's get on with the show.
2: Going to get let's, get on with the show. let's go.
0: Monday, June 24th, 1985, at the Riverbend Music Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. This is almost six years into the Brent era, which makes this the most stable period for the band in regards to their membership so far. You know, when we talked about them in 68 um, and 69, they had only been a band for a few years and they had Mickey as kind of a late joiner. There was, you know, Pigpen coming and going, TC coming and going then we had the beginning of the god show era Uh, we had one drummer dead during that time period in the late 70s we had mickey rejoining the band so the 80s became a very stable period for the band as far as who their musicians were looking at photos from 85 the thing that stands out to me the most is how heavy jerry had gotten and I, I'm not saying like in the 80s, I'm saying specifically 85. When you look at pictures of the band from 81, Jerry is starting to look older. His hair is starting to get gray. You know, he, he's starting to show his age a little bit. But then 80 80, like two, eighty-three, he still kind of looks the same. 84, he starts to put on some some extra poundage. And in, in 85, he was pretty heavy. And you know, that obviously it was starting to impact his health. He went to a diabetic coma the next year in 86 also really impacting his voice and so 85 you can really hear his voice has changed like that extra weight in his neck around his vocal cords around his lungs it really makes an impact you can hear it when you listen to it so that's uh one kind of a challenge i think to listening to 85 dead is is that aspect of it now with that being said don't take that if you're listening to this and you like went to an 85 dead show and had a life-changing experience. Don't take me saying that as like, you know, criticizing it or trying to downgrade the experience of seeing 85 dead. I would have loved to see them in 95 or any year. It would have been awesome. And they still were playing music at an extremely high level throughout this year. Um, and including this show. So it's, I'm not saying it to like, you know, past judgment or to say, you know, you know, armchair quarterbacking it, but it is noticeable. Like his voice, Dave, I'm sure, I'm sure you would agree. It sounds noticeably different from the other eras that we've heard him.
1: Yeah. And it's probably the most inconsistent. We hear him sound both in like other shows in 85, like you might get a great Jerry show or a, a lesser Jerry show, but also in the show, like he is, riding a roll a roller coaster vocally so yeah totally agree
0: yeah that's a really good point i listened to not full shows but clips for about 10 other 85 shows because i wanted to get a sense for you know a, a taste for what was going on in 85 i'd only ever listened to one other 85 show i think before this and that's because it's a dick's picks release maybe volume 23 or 24 and um yeah, so I was not super familiar with 85 Dead. I listened to a bunch. The way that I chose which ones to dip into was I looked at what their rating was on uh, ReListen, which you know has like basically people voting zero to five stars. And I picked a couple that were really high, a couple that were really low, and a couple that were just kind of like in between. This one's rated pretty highly, I think, as it should be, but. Yeah, you're totally right. There are a couple shows where I listen to like, especially like the Jerry ballad after space. And it's just like, oh, there. Oh, man. Yeah, there was a black Peter <laughs> where I was like, man, this guy's he sounds like paint. His voice sounds so bad, unfortunately. So, you know, you, you didn't know what you were going to get. What's going on in the summer of 85? The top album in America was the soundtrack to Beverly Hills Cop. Oddly enough. Um, that was the case for the two weeks surrounding this show. It had been in theaters for 30 weeks at this time, which is crazy. Um, and it was only uh, number 12 in the weekly movie charts. It's crazy because I mean, movies aren't in theaters for 30 weeks anymore, almost ever, uh, number one. Number two, it's weird that it was that late into its theatrical run it was the number one album the soundtrack the only song i can picture from it is the beverly hills cop theme song which then became that like weird crazy frog song in the mid 2000s there was like (laughs) a big ringtone and stuff so i mean catchy like electronic synthy song and a really good movie i mean good eddie murphy judge reinhold i don't know who else is in that movie but Uh, I I enjoy it. And Beverly Hills Cop 2. I think there's a third, but I don't remember that one. Uh, The top movie that week was Pale Rider, which had debuted the previous weekend. Number two was Cocoon. Number four, uh, I don't know why I didn't write down what number three is. Apparently, not a movie that I knew. Number four uh, was St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, This was that movie's opening weekend. Another huge soundtrack uh, to that movie. And number five was The Goonies, one of my favorites. I, I'd say, I think maybe one of the best movies of the 80s, honestly. That movie's so good. Mid-period, Steven Spielberg. Awesome cast. Great coming-of-age movie. Top album of the year was Born in the USA. So that's kind of what was in the zeitgeist. I'm really surprised that that wasn't the number one album uh, at this point, too, because like that just feels like such a good summer album.
1: It was released on June 4th, so, I mean, it's... I kind of agree with you. It's like the first month of this run.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, I'm sure that that was a huge album of the summer. It might, it just might not have been number one yet, but maybe, maybe it was, that was just to come. The top song, top Billboard song was Heaven by Brian Adams. That was the number one song for the two weeks surrounding this show. But then two weeks after this show, We Are the World came out. And then that just like, was the number one song for a really long time. It won the Grammy for record of the year and song of the year. Just kind of took the world by storm in 85. Yeah. And Good that, song. And that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, birthdays on June 24th, Jeff Beck and Mick Fleetwood. So two classic rock, classic rockers, guitarist and a drummer. Uh, and then also Lionel Messi. Birthdays on June 24th and Mindy Kaling. Hey, nice. That was all I got. No notable deaths that I found, which is great. That's, After, yeah. Happy to that. hear that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 1985, uh, the year in, in Grateful Dead history, it was a busy year. They played 71 shows, including legitimate spring, summer, and fall tours around the US. They kind of had two summer tours if you really look at what their touring looked like. But the, the main point is that they did a lot of touring. They are still a year out, as I said, from the 1986 diabetic coma that Jerry Garcia fell into and that kind of put things on hold for the band in 86 and the beginning of 87. Uh, No album uh, was released by the Grateful Dead in 1985, but of course, none had been released for four years. Go to Heaven was uh, the last one that came out before this. And then you had double live albums in 80 and 81, uh, Reckoning uh, being the the one of those two that I own a great acoustic album from their acoustic run that was done in um, San Francisco and New York during the fall of 1980. But one thing that they did do, well, two things that they did in 85 that are kind of noteworthy uh, besides touring, you know, playing great live shows, what were um, they recorded the documentary so far, which is directed by Jerry Garcia, and it's available on YouTube and Amazon prime. If you want to check it out. Um so also from our friend Grateful Seconds average venue capacity had been growing throughout this period it i mean it exploded by the late 80s but this time period they were still playing smaller venues which is kind of cool and one reason why i think it would have been really cool to see the Grateful Dead in 1985 so in 84 the average venue capacity was 11,700 and that jumped by almost 1500 to over 13,000 In 1985 jumped again to 16,000 in 86 and then even further in 87 to 18,500 and ticket sales did the same thing it was actually an even bigger jump in 84 they were averaging just under 8,000 ticket sales per show and in 85 they were selling almost 12,000 seats per show and then again that kept going up as well so the venues that they were playing in in the two weeks around this tour you had three shows at the Greek Theater, June fourteenth, fifteenth, and that show on the sixteenth that I mentioned, where they brought back Cryptical. Those shows were billed as a twenty-year celebration of the Grateful Dead. Hmm. So De- Dennis McNally tells a great story that the first night they played, and the crowd like didn't seem to be like that into it, and they were asking why afterward. And Dennis McNally was like, "Well, because the- these are supposed to be your twentieth anniversary shows, and they were just kind of it was just kind of a regular show." And they were like, oh, well, we didn't even know that. We had no idea. (laughs) And so then like nights two and three, they kind of like ratcheted it up a little bit or did some special things like bringing back Cryptical um, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of The Grateful Dead because none of them knew the actual date. And so Dennis McNally booked these three as the 20th anniversary shows because they roughly coincided with the date that Phil Lesh moved to Palo Alto to join the band in earnest. Oh, so... Those were the anniversary shows closer to home. And then they hit the road for two nights at the Alpine Valley Music Theater, this night at Riverbend, and then the following night was at Blossom. So the reason why I'm saying that around this venue conversation is because the Greek Theater only holds or held at that point at least 8,500 people. Alpine held and holds 37,000, so huge. Yeah, whoa. Two nights, 74,000 tickets available at least. And then Riverbend was a step down. 20,500 is the capacity there. And then Blossom, which is in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, which I assume, I have to assume, is right near Cleveland um, because the Cuyahoga River runs through Cleveland. Oh, Um, there you go. The capacity there is 5,700. So Mm -hmm. really, I mean, if you took this little Midwestern dip with them from Alpine down to Riverbend and then up to Blossom, you would have seen them at, descending venues like yeah big with a capital B big and then you know big but not gigantic 5,700 it's like the shows would get more intimate as you go right yeah so that that was kind of the the part of the tour that they were on now this was as I said the second stop in the third show on their summer 85 tour um, and then from here they did one night stands after blossom in at SPAC, which you were just mentioning earlier, there Hers- you go. Hershey, Pennsylvania, and then two nights in Columbia, Maryland, followed by a tour closer in Pittsburgh. So that was kind of this little tour through, I mean, it's kind of like a Rust Belt tour a little bit. If you yeah, think about it. kind of. Saratoga being, I guess, the exception. Right. Then they would get back on the road like six weeks later uh, for a tour through what uh, Jerry Bass describes as cowboy country the website jerry base talking which has a lot of good data on it that was a tour through texas oklahoma kansas city and then it ended in red rocks so that was kind of the second branch of their summer tour between those two legs in july and the beginning of august everyone was kind of just doing their own thing jerry touring with the jerry garcia band bob I, i think at that time would have been with I don't even know. But Bob was touring with his band. Brent and Billy were touring with a band called Kokomo that was short-lived. I don't think they released any albums or anything, but they were playing small venues because they played. there's one venue that they played at on this tour in New Haven called Toad's Place that I've been to, and it's the smallest concert venue I've ever been to. It's the type of place where you're standing in the back of the room watching the band and you're like 100 feet from them. So would have been kind of cool to see brent and billy playing in a venue of that size it was with a four-piece band i must admit i did not dive deep into the kokomo catalog for this but that's what they were doing at that point in time okay so the venue itself the riverbend music center capacity at least today is twenty-one thousand on the nose it opened the year before this show in 1984 and how about this at the time it was just the 16th outdoor music amphitheater in the united states
1: Yeah, isn't that kind of crazy? It's like that. There hadn't been a lot.
0: No, it's wild. I mean, I guess SPAC was before it. It must be because they were, you know, playing there the following week. And I think they'd play there before this as well. Kind of cool. I'm excited to go there this summer. It looks like it's right on on the river in Cincinnati and
1: right on the Ohio River. Yep. Yep. Right on the the Kentucky border.
0: Yep. One of the things that is kind of cool about this venue is that it's widely credited with reviving live music in Cincinnati it had largely gone away after the tragic events of the concert that the who had there in 79, where there were like people died because they were trampled getting in. And um, I think that the city had like really kind of shied away from big music acts coming in after that fairly. So, I mean, that's a, that was an odd, sounds like an absolutely awful situation, you know, reading accounts of what happened at that concert. And this was the Dead's first show in Cincinnati since 1976. So they were um, you know, happy to go back, I'm sure. Right. This venue hosted, has hosted a bunch of big names. It has hosted a bunch of festivals too over the years. Lilith Fair, OzFest, Warped Tour, uh, an early uh, Lollapalooza was there. So it's been like a big f- uh, kind of festival draw which is kind of cool. It also makes me wonder what the camping situation is going to be like when I go there this summer. I, I bet that if it's hosted festivals, then I bet there will be some people who are who are sleeping out there, which will be kind of cool. It's also, oddly, seemingly the road home, the home away from home for Jimmy Buffett.
1: Right. I was going to say, if you've like kind of heard of this venue, but you're not sure why, maybe you're a Jimmy Buffett fan because he plays there every year. And, you know, with the... Not playing because of the pandemic, but he played there every year from 88 to 2019.
0: And he also released a live album from there. So he has really made it his home away from home. The Dead played this show. They returned again in 86, but then not again afterward. Maybe not until this year. The Dead & Company revival. This show. So as we said, we picked it because Devin recommended it to us. Shout out to you, Devin. Thank you again. But this show is also... This has been a live release this show it was released as part of the 30 trips around the sun box set that came out in 2015 where they released one show from every each of the 30 years the dead were a live touring act this was the selection for 1985 making it just one of two shows from 1985 that have been released in full by the grateful dead so 85 not a year with great coverage although a beloved year among the fans if you look at like the comments for this or like especially the comments on heady like every other one is like great version from an awesome tour. So people were having a blast on this tour.
1: I have a theory why people love 85 shows. Um, And it's, I mean, credit to uncle Kyle for this theory because 85 is his favorite year of the grateful dead. I think a lot of people in that age bracket, like born between 1965 and 1970 are growing up and becoming, you know, teenagers young adults early 20s and so this is like very formative music it's also the grateful dead are so accessible with all their live shows so these are maybe for some people like their first concerts or the first band they saw live i think a lot of people in that age bracket like born between 1965 and 1970 so born when the dead were had technically started being a band but now, old enough to appreciate them and and listen to them, that's my theory is that a lot of people like have been growing up with them and now are able as young adults to like independently go see them.
0: So this is a theory that you came up with influenced by Uncle Kyle telling you about his experience in eighty five. yes, great, great meshing then of uh, you taking his experience and applying your own framework to it because I think that's I think that you're really onto something. I'm reminded of another Grateful Seconds <laughs> article I've read. I'm really just pumping this website up today. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he he did a poll very recently about like how old you were when you went to your first Dead show. And the, mm. by far, the most common age bracket was 15 to 18 years old. It was like so many... On a bell curve, that's like the big old big part of the bell was 15 yeah. to 18 years old. And so if you think about it, people who are 15 to 18 for these shows would have been born in 67 to 70 which is like the prime ages to feel like you just missed the sixties. You know, there are probably some people who were born Uh, like, like my mom and dad were both born in 61. They were not old enough to go to Woodstock. Obviously they, they were our children of the seventies. And I would think that there would probably be a lot of people who were born in the sixties and maybe early seventies who hear all these stories about Woodstock and things like that. And they were like, man, it would have been cool to be alive for that, but they couldn't. But what you can do is go to a Grateful Dead show and get a little piece of it. And so that makes total sense to me that this would be around the time. I'm pretty sure that 85 or thereabouts was when David Lemieux went to his first Dead show. So I'd be curious Mm -hmm. if he maybe agrees with your theory. But I think it's a good one. I think you're definitely onto something. I also wonder if part of it is because this was before the Touchheads came onto the scene that song had been in the live repertoire for a few years at this point, but it hadn't been released as a live album. So it wasn't getting any radio play or anything. Mm. And so they hadn't become like a mainstream hit again in 1985. And so the people who were there were like true deadheads. You're not going unless you are. And these shows, I mean, if you read, like if you can find or seek out newspaper articles from around this time, basically every time they go to a different city, it's like, you know, Rochester, the dead are playing at the war memorial, and it's the town is being invaded by deadheads. And, like, that's like the general <laughs> tenor of all of the articles that are out of, around that time was that, like, the circus has come to town pretty yeah. much. <laughs> all right. Well, should we get into the set list?
1: No, let's dive on in.
0: This show begins with Alabama Getaway. This was the 6th most common opener period for the Grateful Dead and uh the second most common opener of 1985. 82, 83, and 84 was also the second most common show opener and in 81 it was the most common show opener. So if you were at a Dead show in the first half of the Brent era good chance you're you're starting it with an Alabama getaway. Uh, they played this song 142 times. All but three were in the Brent era. They retired it when he died and then brought it back three times in 95. So they, had, they were starting to think about bringing it back into the catalog before Jerry died. This version in particular, it's very good, I thought. What was your thought on it overall?
1: Oh, it's... This version in particular is really good. I understand why they open so much shows with "Alabama Getaway." It's high energy. It's a, it's a good, but kind of shorter song. So like you can get people excited and then get on, get on with the show. I don't love this song, but I love this version. This was great. Um, I saw it and I started playing and I was like, okay, "Alabama Getaway" opener, classic. But the keys were really refreshing and right off the bat you can tell Jerry is gonna give the Cincy crowd a little treat tonight because he sounds so great.
0: I agree. The like the organ solo that Brent rips off in like the 315 range is smoking hot. Like really, oh, yeah. really, 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 really good. And great soloing by Jerry to finish the song. I really one of my notes is that this is a rockin' version from the start start to finish like it it they start out high energy and they keep that up all the way until the end this is the fifth most upvoted version of this song on heady version which of of 142 times that's very impressive and it's it's easy to see easy to see why it's so beloved because it's just rocking the soloing that finishes the song leads to a really great transition to greatest story ever told Mm -hmm. which is the first bob song we get in this set they just keep up like the high tempo rock and roll vibes from Alabama getaway. You've got, like I said, a great transition into it. And then they like, they're playing it at a good zippy tempo. I I really like this one, two punch of, you know, we get a high, high tempo Jerry song, good, good high tempo Bobby song. And we're off to a, just a rock and start to this concert.
1: Yeah. And the, the connective tissue between those two is Jerry, like like you said, soloing at the end and then roaring right in to greatest story ever told. I thought Bob sounded really good, but at least in the version that I listened to, the Internet Archive version, the equipment and like echo on his mic was kind of distracting from his sound. And it's not the only time it happens throughout the show, but this like echoey Bob mic kind of took away from how good he was sounding. Cause he sounds really good. And then kind of, it would be like the last line of each verse. It would be this like, wow, 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 wow. Like following every syllable that he was saying. So that took away from it for me. And maybe that's just the version I listened to, but I was like, Oh, this would have been really good without that echoey mic.
0: No, I agree with you. I almost wondered if it was on purpose. I wrote like weird echo effect because it, I I bet you're right I don't know I don't think it was it's not consistent enough for me to feel like it was on purpose because it seems like random when it happens and it happened to Jerry once or twice we'll talk about it when
1: we get into loser why I don't think it was on purpose but I I don't think it was Bob being like oh let me try something weird and put an echo effect on my mic I think he started it and was probably like oh what's going on (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree that does that does kind of distract a little bit when it happens in the kind of beginning, like the first third of the song, and then it happens again. I think later on, his singing is pretty low in the mix, honestly, during the song. But he his voice does sound great. His guitar is like weirdly higher in the mix than his vocals are. I mean, he's really spelting it out with this song. He's like really yeah. screaming. It yeah, out. yeah, yeah. He's he's kind of giving his heart <laughs> to this song. Uh, and I agree, he does... But it sounds good. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that his voice sounds really good throughout this show. And um, he and Brent both do. Brent, his singing is super low in the mix. Mm-hmm. Like, you can barely hear him throughout this show uh, a lot of the time. But, he, I mean, his his voice sounds good too. The interplay between Bob, Jerry, and Brent during like the... I don't want to call it a solo, but it is soloe. Like the jam break that they take around like the three minute mark, the interplay between the three of them is great. They're like just kind of taking turns and it it just sounds excellent. So from Greatest Story, we go into they love each other. So they really take the energy down. Obviously they love each other as a much softer, quieter song than the two that we just mentioned. A really nice song. I really like it. I think that it was on time crisis recently. They were talking about how it's very odd to hear a song about how a song about how two other people love each other. Like not like my love for you is so <laughs> great or like you love me, whatever. But it's like this song and um, that one by the Beatles. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like It's not even about me. This is just like these two people love each other and that's beautiful. And so I'm going to write a song about it. And I think that that is kind of cool, but yeah, this song it's, it is a very big change from what we just got. And it is Jerry's really struggling vocally on the song. Like, especially in the beginning, he sounds like he's like having a hard time, like catching his breath almost, but his, his playing is typically solid. Like it, it, always is on this song, but yeah, I think that this is a pretty sleepy version of they love each other all told. And I don't think it, it also doesn't help that the bottom end of the sound is really difficult to hear on this, this one. Like, I don't even really know what Phil's doing on it. Cause it's really hard to hear him. And so this no, song, I, I
1: kind of couldn't hear Phil and Bob at all
0: on yeah. on
1: this version, but i mean jerry locked it down so that was yeah. nice yeah yeah i agree with you
0: not not one that i would go back to though i i think that again I, pretty kind of just like uh like it just kind of <laughs> i don't know how else to describe it other than sleepy
1: no i i just i wrote it was very very average
0: mm-hmm.
1: the peak of the song for me was at the 5:30 mark um the drums were doing some good things, um, and Jerry was doing good things too. I've never seen this song live. I don't think you've ever seen this song live either. For some reason, I just think this would be a good song if it was like raining at the show. I don't know why. Mm. Um, I ha- I just think it would be a good song, like if it's going to be raining when you're outside at a dead show. This song, for some reason, I think would be nice.
0: Fair. I could see that. I really thought that I was gonna hear this. I don't remember why. I, don't, I had a reason, but for some reason, the Charlotte show that I went to last year, I really felt like I was gonna get this song that night. I think. Oh, okay. I think I remember why. A couple nights before that, they had brought it back with like the up tempo arrangement that they played in. It might have even just been nineteen seventy four, but around that time, seventy four, maybe seventy three as well. They would play this song at a much faster pace. They brought that arranged That Dead and Company had played this for this type of version, like the slower version. Right. And then one of the shows in the beginning of their fall tour, they like really sped it up. And I was like, I bet they're gonna do that again. And I feel like I'm gonna get that in Charlotte. And they didn't, but they played it the next night in um Atlanta. So I've missed it by one, by one night. I, I do really like that song though. And a song that you really like is next on the set list. We've got a new Minglewood Blues. This slot, the fourth song of the show, or the third song, either way, the second bob song of the show in the 80s is like Bobby Blues just chalk. It's right gonna down. be yep. yeah, it's either gonna be we're either going down to Minglewood, it's gonna be a CC Rider, a you know, little red rooster, maybe a smokestack lightning. It's gonna be some sort of Bobby Blues. Of those options, New Minglewood is. Definitely my favorite. So I was I was glad that that was the one that was in the Bobby Blue slot for this show. And um, I liked this version, but I should just step back and let you talk about it because you're our resident Mingle Woodhead.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love seeing it in any set list. And I would say the first two minutes were a little disappointing. Um, and then the last six minutes of the song make up for it. It, you don't get that guttural roar, which I know is your favorite part of the song, the when Bob really reaches for that lion's den, like deep in his diaphragm. You kind of get more of like a a safe start to the song. And then the first two minutes, my critique was felt a little less bluesy and a little more shuffle. It was more of a New Minglewood shuffle, partly to blame on the drumming, but then, at the three-minute mark, the fire starts. And I've always said, the keys make or break the song. And Brent is punishing the keys. And it's so, so fun to listen to. The drums then like do this complete 180. And they go from kind of shuffling along to really like locking and holding it down. Bob is trying his best with the slide guitar. And, and we appreciate that. But then it's Jerry and Brent to the rescue at like the five-ish minute mark. I think... Bob was kind of the weak point in this new Minglewood and everybody else kind of saved the day at the end. Um, Liked it, didn't love it, but you know, I always love a Minglewood.
0: That's fair. I think that the ending is the peak of the song for me. I dig the cool feedback at the end too. And I agree. So like, if you told me, okay, I'm going to play you a Grateful Dead song and it features Bob on the slide guitar. I wouldn't be like, oh fuck you (laughs) you know (laughs) or like oh i'm gonna hate that song like i am not willing to just like write him off in that talent that's like skill set entirely i think that he got better at it as the 80s went along and i think that there's a song two songs from this one where he's much better at it than he is in this song yes but i didn't think that he was like distractingly bad by any means it's just like it just kind of like is what it is but I agree that like the Jerry Brent interplay, especially in the back half of this song, is really good. And it's interesting the drummer thing that you're talking about because this is not the last time in this show where they have like a hard time in the beginning of the song for whatever reason. They they like they like find they have like a really hard time getting into the tempo of it, and then they they get there. Right. It's like a minute and a half or two minutes into this one, and it's the same in the other song that I'm thinking of later on. And then it's like, Oh, okay. Now, now we're good. Like it's all, it's all good now. But like in the beginning, it's just like, guys, like (laughs) tighten it up.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if they like, couldn't see the set list for some reason, but yeah, that happens more than once where they're like, they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. And now we've got it figured out.
0: Yeah. Odd. Uh, this is one where I wish that I could hear Phil more clearly because I generally really like his bass paying his bass playing on New Minglewood and I couldn't hear it super clearly on this song, really throughout the show. I think you what you said
1: about the the like mixer on the lower end being turned down is right because Phil doesn't stand out this entire show and I would bet money it's not because Phil was playing poorly. It's just because he wasn't like mixed in correctly.
0: I agree. And this is actually a good time to get into a quick correction corner from the last show. Thank you to Zach Cropper for correcting me on this. In the last show, I referred to the Europe 72 CD basically that are available on Spotify as soundboards. And Zach messaged me and said, get the vernacular straight. Basically, those are multi-track recordings. And so he provided a very concise little primer that I can read to our audience in case you don't know the difference between the two. So a multi-track means each input is being recorded to its own track, which obviously allows for greater flexibility when mixing, Zach tells us. It also means there are separate recording mics, not not the ones for the room. A second mic on the bass drum is a dead giveaway that a show is being recorded. This leads to a much better sound quality, more vibrant, et cetera. Whereas a soundboard is simply a copy of whatever's being fed into the mixing desk to the PA and will often function like a mirror image of the sound in the room. For example, if the arena is really boomy or the sound system is massive, the mix in the PA will be lighter on the bass. So the soundboard will sound thin in the bass when the bass actually sounded huge at the show.
1: That's why he's a doctor, Cropper, and you and I are just bums trying this out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but that's also probably why we can't hear Phil. Because this is an outdoor venue, yeah, like they, they've got a the sound system is massive because they've got to reach the people at the back of the lawn, and so it would make sense that we wouldn't be able to hear the bass as clearly here as we would have at, for example, that show at the Empire Pool, where we've got a multi-track and there's a mic on his bass, right? That we're hearing, you know, direct from the source. So, you know, that's okay. We we can just assume that Phil was crushing it on the bass right. throughout this show. <laughs> I mean, I, that's what I choose to believe. So there it is. The next song, uh, we're back to Tennessee. Right? We apparently only do shows with Tennessee jet in them <laughs> at this point in time. Um, so here we go. We've got, uh, <laughs> my, I have one note on this song stock version, but Jerry's voice also doesn't sound good. Not for me. <laughs> that's all I got on this version. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I thought this was a slightly more spaced out version uh, than than the ones we talked about last time, like the more tight, concise ones from Europe '72. We did all that talk about multi-tracking and how we were going to assume Phil was good. This was the song where Phil stood out to me. Um, so all all of what we just analyzed for not, but Phil Phil and the, Phil was really locking it down in this one.
0: I'll take your word for it.
1: Are we getting tired of Jed? Because I didn't take a lot of notes either.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I think this is literally the fourth straight show that we've we've gone back to Tennessee. Yeah. I will say I did think about when this song started that Zach said in our bonus episode that like the very first lyric is like super evocative to him. Like he hears it and it feels like he's transported. I did think about that. Yeah. Which is still cool. But yeah, not not for me. Um, The rest of the first set is definitely for me. So from here, they go into My Brother Esau. This is the song where Bob's slide sounds quite good. I like what he's doing with the slide on this song. I really like the intro segment. This is like the inverse of what we were just talking about, where the drummers are in lockstep for the beginning of this song. Bob has this kind of cool lick that he's working on with the slide. And this is another one, though, where we get the, the echo effect on Bob's vocals, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. The echo was, again, kind of a distraction from how good he sounded. I don't know if it's the two drummers like yelling at each other, or it's someone in the crowd, but you hear somebody yell like Esau, and then someone yells back, "Who's gonna sing that?" And I don't know if the drummers were like they were like making sure they were they knew what was next, or someone in the crowd was just like predicting in the front row like, "Oh, I think they're going into this," and their friend was like, oh, who's gonna do that one?" But that's what i heard uh and then my my notes from the song were a warm invitation from the keys cowbell opens the door and then jerry sucks you in with some good playing
0: yeah jerry's playing sounds great on this song i think that the the banter that you were talking about is from the drummers i think that's on on stage i think that they were they were calling the next song okay because they introduced this song in spring of 83 and then had played the crap out of it throughout 83, 84 and 85. So I think that they would have known who was going to sing it. Like the audience (laughs) would have. And so that's why I think, I think that they were being sassy to Bob who's going to sing it. Uh. And then I think that that's why at the end of this song, Bob says um, (laughs) that was a hostage ending (laughs) He says during the break, we're going to be holding a raffle and the lucky winner of the raffle gets to hold the rhythm section hostage. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then from there they go right into loser before we talk about loser though. I do really like my brother. Esau. I I like that song a lot. I think that that's another kind of good bluesy Bob song. And I, I really thought that this was a a quite good version. One of my favorite songs from the first set, I would say. So I don't want to short, short sell it by, you know, not talking about it for that long, but yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on it.
1: Wow. I was the other side of the, of the aisle. I thought that this was the low point of set one. Wow. Was the Jed into Esau. Um, So I thought that the, that was the dip. um, But we're about to come out of the dip and we're about to get hot because Jerry's not having those jokes about Bob raffling off his drummers. he gets, right down to business with, with the beginning of loser.
0: Yeah. Jerry and Billy always bore close. So that's true. So there we go. Uh, We go into loser. Uh, This is tied for 26 on heady version of 353 total performances of loser. So a truly beloved version of this song.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And um, yeah, I get it. There's a great solo in like the 410 range of this song. And to me, the return, like that solo, and then the return into the singing, into the last fair deal part of, of the song is the high point of the song from a vocal standpoint. Brent and Bob are on like the supporting vocals are doing awesome. And you can, it, Jerry's voice, even though it sounds rough, you can hear that he's like pouring his heart into the song at that, at that point, which really sounds great great i think that when his voice is worse for the wear the effort that he's putting in becomes the most endearing and enjoyable part of the listening experience and that that part of this song i think is a good exemplification of what i'm talking about there overall i think that the the playing throughout this song is just really great the the drumming on this song i think is I don't, I can't say it's always good. There are 353 versions. There are probably some where it's not. <laughs> but at least the versions that I'm very familiar with, uh, they do a nice job with like a pretty sparse palette that this song asks for from from the drummers. It's a very irregular beat that they're asked to keep throughout the song. It's you know shuffly, but there are parts where it doesn't sound like they're doing almost anything, and they do a really nice job with it especially for me, the last minute of the song, the drumming is super understated and just sounds excellent. It really adds to the whole, the whole experience of listening to the song. I think
1: the last minute of this song in general, I think everyone is, is peaking. Um, and absolutely. I don't have anything to add. You hit all my points.
0: Okay, nice. Uh, another extremely upvoted song is next. The set one finale, the set one closer is let it grow.
1: Welcome to the show. Welcome to the program.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, We've never talked about Let It Grow or Weather Report Suite. So at this point, they were not doing the whole suite, just Let It Grow. And this is the second most upvoted song of the show as far as like total votes go. It's 15th on Heady Version, which makes it at the, the last entry on the first page when you look at Let It Grow. This is the other song I was thinking of specific or one of a few other songs I was thinking of where the drummer's don't have the pace of the beginning. The first like two minutes, I don't really know. Like the band is not playing in time with each other. And then they find it as the, so as the song goes on and the fact that it's so upvoted, despite that, like kind of almost jarring beginning for, from a tempo standpoint just speaks to how good the middle and end of the song are like the mid song jam is super strong. Jerry is soloing his ass off. And then from like 8.30 to 9.30, it is just like, man... It's so strong and then they on a dime drop the tempo which is like to be so nimble as a two drummer band is crazy to me. Brent's Mm -hmm. keys around that point are also really just tremendous but yeah this is just a great way to end set one and uh, you know I totally get why this is the 15th ranked version on Heady Version because it's fantastic.
1: It's excellent as soon as you get to that I don't know if it's like the bridge or the break. I don't know how the band views it at the 4:30 mark. Like right when you get there, they take it to another level with that like that mid like you said that mid-song mid section and then you get that good good rhythm um, right at the 8-minute mark. I think I said way back on episode 1 that US Blues was my favorite rhythm guitar song and I've got to, I got to change course. I love that like crunchy rhythm here where that like E to F sharp to G on the guitar, on the rhythm guitar. This is my favorite rhythm guitar song. I love the, that, that like end portion, um, mm-hmm. where they switch where it's just like the dirt, 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 dirt. Oh, that part. Burrow, okay. Burrow, yeah. burrow, <laughs> I, it's, it's, I just, I love that little crunch that they get into and, Yeah. Once you get to that middle section, you're in for a treat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I mean, I totally agree. I I really love that. I mean, I I think that when it's all said and done, that's the high point of set one. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. There are other high points. and I mean, there are highs and lows. This is like some some good warty 1985 Grateful Dead. (laughs) Set one, it's just over an hour long in total. There are highs and lows but it ended on a really high note and it made me excited about what was to come in set two. Set two begins with Ico Ico. I think this is the first time we've talked about this song, isn't it?
1: It is. And we have to shout out our good friend and friend of the show, Nicholas Beto. It is his favorite Grateful Dead song. So shout out Beto. Thanks for listening. And we're going to chat some Ico Ico.
0: Absolutely. Shout out to you, Nick. So un- unfortunately uh, for Nick, I think this is a good version. I don't think it's like the best version. So I guess I'll caveat it that way. Maybe it's not unfortunate for Nick. The- this is another one though, where I feel like the beginning of this song, the like sneakery sound with the two drummers is in full force at the beginning of the song. And then they, they figure it back out. But, The main issue for me with this song, and I do think that it's overall a fine version. It's very much enjoyed by the masses. It's 13th on heady version of the Mm. Grateful Dead Ico Icos. The piano tone that Brent is working with. I don't really like it. I don't Why Why not? I don't know. I've, I've tried to put my finger on it because he's using this same tone for most of the second set. It's kind of like, what's the right word? hollow maybe like i know what you mean yeah it doesn't sound like full and i kind of wish that he was just like playing a piano or even an organ but like this electronic tone that he has going on i'm just like not as crazy about it
1: dry maybe because it's not like echoey like the 90s show but hollow and empty
0: yeah when he switches to the organ in the second set, that's when I'm like, okay, now I really like what Brent's doing, but it's, it's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's hard for me to get past that. I don't enjoy it very much. I think that, um, ov- overall though, this is a, a fine version. I have a similar
1: analysis to the set one opener, Alabama getaway. Like Alabama getaway is not one of my favorite Dead songs. I apologize to Beto here. Ico Ico is, is not one of my favorite dead songs, but these versions of these songs are ripping hot. The Ico Ico has a couple hiccups here in the beginning, like you talked about, but Bobby really turned it up in the second half of the song. His, you know, chomp, chomp, chomp was fun in this version. Like you talked about number 13 on Hetty version. And the cool thing about this song on Heady version is this is one of the few songs where it's really all over the map. Like normally when you go to a song on a Heady version, you'll see like tracks, like you'll see, you know, if a song came out in the mid seventies, it's like the best versions are 77, 78, and you'll get a random like 89 thrown in. Yeah. Or, you know, a lot of songs that were on the Europe 72 tour. It's like the best five of the top seven versions are from, you know, April or May 72. With Ico Ico, it's like, it's it's like truly random what which are the considered the best versions of this song and i think this song is properly rated as on that front page in that top 15
0: i do agree i think it's cool that what you're saying about the heady version response the song specifically i'm thinking of is eyes of the world because like i think all of the top 10 versions of eyes are from 74 or it might even be more than that but like that year and that song are almost like inexorably intertwined. I also think that what the comparison you made to set one is interesting because the second song in set two, it follows kind of a similar pattern to set one as well, because you have Ico and then it goes into Samson and Delilah, which is another uptempo Bobby song. And so you kind of have the same thing, two hot songs to start set one, two hot songs to start set two. And, um, Samson and Delilah is actually the most upvoted song of this show on heady version. It is the number six version of Samson on heady version of over 350 times played. And I see why. I mean, I don't think that this is as good as the one that we heard on our first episode from February 5th, 1978. Right. I do think that it is an extremely good version of Samson and Delilah. Jerry's playing is on fire. This entire song, he does not relent, and it, uh, the especially go like the six-minute range. His soloing is just gnarly. <laughs> I think that the driving force behind this high rating is Jerry's guitar playing on this song. Um, I, I think it's great and Bob is, you know, singing his heart out and it's just a, a good version really from beginning to end.
1: Yeah. And don't leave Brent out of there. Brent is like battling Jerry for just pure awesomeness in the beginning. Like who's going to be doing it better. Um, and then I think it's Brent in the backing vocal on the chorus, like really giving it his all on the on the end of the chorus for some backing vocals, and it sounds really good. Uh, there's a little fuzz on Jerry's guitar that we don't hadn't heard in the show up to this point, and it sounds really nice. This was my song. You talked about it in Esau. This was my song where I thought Slide Bob sounded the best. And he and Jerry on the solo working together was really, really good. And then Brent joined the fun. And yeah, this is a wild, hot version. I agree with you that the first time we listened to this song, it was like just a little better. And I think that that was because the drums were like a little more locked in. But I remember talking about that, about how they didn't miss in 77 with Samson and Delilah. This song is number six on, heady version. The number four version is from June 30th, 1985. So apparently in 1985, they didn't miss with Samson and Delilah either.
0: Wow. That's really interesting. I didn't pick up on that. That's, that's pretty cool. I think that the other thing that to me differentiates the 78 version from this one is I, again, not to harp on it, but I really like the piano tone for Keith in that song a lot better. And he does this cool, like going up his keys in the middle of that song um, that I remember really, really liking. And so I think that that is like the slight differentiator for me. But both great versions and a great continuation of this beginning into set two. It's worth noting that set two is 84 minutes of just continuous jamming. There are no tuning breaks. There's not, Every song goes into the next and it is just, uh, I mean... It's just impressive. Yeah, it's a monster jam. And th- that is one thing that I will say for Brent. As much as a lot of this set, I'm like, uh, come on with his tone. <laughs> I do think that it's impressive that he's going back and forth between his, his electric keyboard and his um, organ and really just like playing them both well. I mean, the guy's got chops, obviously, uh, but everyone is doing doing really well throughout this monster jam of a second set. The third song is he's gone. So again, kind of imitating the first set structure where now we've got a little slowdown. I really like the pacing of this song, the way that they play it, it's it's nice in 85.
1: And to parallel the discussion with the first set that they love each other, I think was like a little bit of a lull. Like you talked about this, this isn't a lull, it's just slower. It's monster playing, just at a slightly slower pace. And Bob and Phil really stand out at the beginning in this just triumphantly beautiful song.
0: Yeah, Bob stands out throughout this song. I think the wah that he's got going on on his guitar sounds great. It really suits the way that he's playing on this song. And, um... Yeah, I mean, his his entire his, his entire approach to this song is excellent. Um, I think that this song also includes Jerry's best vocal moment so far in this show, which is the nothing left to do but smile, smile, smile. He sounds pretty good at that point, and it feels like his voice is getting better as the show goes on, which is kind of odd, mm-hmm. but I, I feel that way
1: i noted that too and you've made this point before about how 80s and 90s era jerry gives back what the crowd gives to him and so right before that is the steal your face right off your headline where the crowd just roars and they're loving it so then he gives it back with that nothing left to do but smile 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 so totally agree and then i think that echoey trippy vibe around the 8:30 mark must have been cool to be a part of if you were in the crowd Um, I thought that that was a really neat close to ender to the song.
0: That's funny. My note is echo effect is back. Really adds in a cool trippy way. I totally agree. I think that that's kind of a cool thing in this song, whether or not it was on purpose.
1: We've been kind of like shitting on it the whole time, how it's been taking away from the show. But credit to the band, If, if it was accidental, credit to the band to like figure out how to incorporate it positively in this moment here. Yeah.
0: For sure. So from He's Gone, we get another Bobby Blues song, Smokestack Lightning. This is originally a Howlin' Wolf song. He was originally singing it, Howlin' Wolf, as early as the 1930s. Oh, it, man. Yeah, it was officially released in March of 1956 and was originally a Pigpen song when the Grateful Dead played it. He played it with lots of harmonica, which was kind of cool. And then they retired it upon his death, but brought it back in October of 1984 for about 45 more plays. And it was usually they would play it after either Truckin' or He's Gone. And so, you know, this this kind of fits. So I listened to a bunch of different covers of this song throughout this brief interlude between our recording dates because it's been, it's an oft-covered song. It's a Helen Wolf classic. And, uh, I don't know. I like Bob plays this. He sings this song pretty well. Like this, this song, I wouldn't necessarily say that like it like suits like just if I would have heard that the Howlin' Wolf one, I don't know if I would have made the connection in my head of like Bob Weir would be good at singing that song. But he does actually a really nice job of like kind of growling through it and putting some Mm -hmm. stank on it in a good way. He owns it, yeah. He totally does. And so like I said, he he played it 45 times as the lead singer after they brought it back in 84. This is the, I believe, the number one upvoted one of Bob's performances on Heady Version.
1: Correct, yeah. Number four overall, first non-Pigpen version for good reason. This was a roaring hot smokestack lightning the transition to was incredible we went from deep and soulful soulful and he's gone to just that badass march of the blues of this song
0: yeah i totally agree i think that this is a like as much as the he's gone vocal part for jerry was a high point for him this is a cool bobby blues high point for his vocals and the playing is just really good, too.
1: How would you describe Jerry's guitar playing in this song?
0: I can, like... I I feel the emotion. Hold on, hold on. Give me a minute to think about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I want to try to verbalize the way that I'm feeling about it. Because the words that are coming to mind are, like, sleazy and, like, deviant, I guess, in a <laughs> Deviant's way. Deviant's not bad, yeah. What do you think? The word that
1: I had? Sexy. Like, he was... Confident and beautiful and a little bit dangerous. I get what you mean about him like slinking around on the guitar, but it was just some sexy playing. And there's a reason this is the number one Bob version. I mean, this was just top to bottom. Excellent.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the, like when you asked me that, the visual that I was thinking to correspond with the way that his playing sounded was like, Almost like what I would envision the Staggerly story to look like, only placed in New Orleans. Mm. Like, kind of like sneaking around in an alley or something like that. And that's why I said, like, deviant. And yeah. so, yeah, I think we're on the same page. That is definitely the emotion that his playing conjures up on this song. Yeah, great version. I really liked it. From here, we go into the reason why we're talking about this show in the first place. A cryptical envelopment. So, unfortunately, you can really hear the breathlessness in Jerry's singing during mm-hmm. this song. He's like having a hard time, like really, like singing it. And again, I think that that comes down to the weight that he had gained in the mid '80s. um With that being said, I really don't even care. It's still just super cool to hear this song it's, come up again. It
1: is super cool. I think the crowd is surprised. Like they don't, they don't really start cheering until the 14 second mark. Like after, maybe they thought Jerry was just like noodling around a little bit, and then they're like, "Oh wait, shit!" And this is cryptical, and then they really get into it.
0: It stands in stark contrast to the Saint Stephen return, where literally two notes in, there's an explosion of a cheer, and we'll have to talk to, to David from Grateful Seconds about the difference eight days earlier when they brought this back to the vibe in the, in the audience when they brought back St. Stephen, because it did seem more yeah. explosive. The crowd reaction to that one, then this one, I get it was the second time they had played it. And so maybe there were some people who knew that they had brought it back at the Greek theater and they were not as wowed by it. Uh. But this is still only the second time they've played this song in 12 years. Like, you know, I, I would think that people would be going pretty crazy.
1: Yeah, I think I was just expecting more of a like shock and awe factor for the crowd to be going ballistic. And I was like, huh, I don't think people understand what's going on here.
0: They they played the song 276 times as a band, but almost all of them were in the pen era. Right. They, they played it five times in the summer of 85. This was the second of the five. As I said, the first was that 616-85 show. And, you know, it's a short, tidy little cryptical, as they were most of the time. But it's just, it's more cool to hear it than anything, I think.
1: Yeah, it's it's so cool. My one critique of this song is kind of the same critique we've been pumping out on Billy and Mickey. Like, did they not get the memo that they were playing cryptical? But like, they are just not, they are not in sync with one another. And this is only... I mean, the crypticals are short. They, they do uh, bifurcate them. Right. It's only two minutes long, and for the first 90 seconds, they're out of sync. And it's like, guys, there's not much left. They, I guess, salvage it at the end. But <laughs>
0: Think about this, though. So that, that story that I told about Dennis McNally having to tell them that they were playing for their 20th anniversary, and then they're like, oh, okay, I guess we'll come up with something then for the second shows. It might have been like, you know what would be interesting? What if we brought back Cryptical Envelopment? And then like everyone had to remember how to play it that day even, you know? Yeah. And so now yeah. they're eight days removed. They decide they're going to try it again, but maybe they don't remember it that well. They played a lot of different songs in the meantime. That's for damn sure. But... In any case, yeah, I think that the drumming and Jerry's vocals are the stumbling blocks, but I don't think that either of those overrides my positive feelings about this song just because I'm so happy to hear it again. Same, same, Yeah. yeah. So from here they go into, from Cryptical, they go into drums and space. I like this drum space. I think I like this drum space better than the 90 drum space that we talked about.
1: For sure.
0: The first three minutes, it sounds like fireworks. These guys are exploding on the drum set. And it sounds really cool. I'm a big fan of this, that opening section. It's almost like marching band-esque.
1: It's, I think it's because of the super strong snare presence. Um, and I really, really liked what Billy was doing on the snare. Until it gets, I would say dark, but we've been to a dark drum space with that ninety show. So it gets uh, slightly shaded yeah. around the 415 mark with the Toms and Cowbell.
0: Yeah, the cowbell, when that comes in, that's when I started to identify it as like the midsection of drums because Mickey starts playing that, and it it sounds really good, but then I think that that is like a a clear transition from that beginning strong, like snare forward playing that we're getting in the beginning. And then the end section is just like a pretty much like an extended space lead in with, I think it's just Mickey drumming at that point. It's very psychedelic and a pretty cool, entree into into space which is then a like a trippy trippy space there's howling sounds laughing sounds whistling jungle sounds yeah and some like some light guitar teasing of the other one which is interesting because then they don't go into the other one (laughs) right um what did you think about space any notes on that
1: The jungle sounds I thought were creepy but cool. And then the other note was um, this was another song where that like echoey effect actually helped. Like it actually contributed value um, because it just made it more trippy and weird. And Jerry's noodling, I wrote eerie but cheery (laughs) because it was. It was like strange but not dark. And maybe I'm like unfairly comparing it to the 90s show that we talked about, but it was like happy, weird, not like, Oh God, crawl under the table. Weird.
0: Yeah. I, yeah, I agree with that. We have heard a very scary space. This is not that. I mean, there are parts that I, if you were tripping, especially you'd be freaking out. I have no doubt, but it's not as scary. The teasing of the other one is interesting because then they, Oh, I should also mention this is tied for the nineteenth most upvoted space on Heady version. I didn't even know that there that space existed on Heady version, but it does. And so Like sp-
1: like split out?
0: Yeah. Huh. So this is uh the number tied again, tied for nineteenth. Then from here we do not go into the other one, which would have made sense as like cryptical drums, the other one cryptical was a very common that's it for the other one sweet in the 60s. But instead, we get a Jerry ballad coming out of space which is, you know, what what was common throughout the 80s. And it's an absolutely gorgeous one comes a time. This song was played 67 times between 1971 and 1995, and this was only the second time that they had played it after the a little break that they took between 1980 and 1985. Uh I think that this song suits Jerry's voice. My note is This song suits Jerry's voice or I'm just getting used to it as we go, but this ain't bad. I think that this might be the best that his voice has sounded. I mean, it.
1: I was just going to say, I'm going to do you one better. And I think it actually sounds beautiful with how it works here. And I think this was the best his voice had sounded in the show.
0: Yeah. Probably my favorite song of this era is Stella blue. I like the way that it sounds when he has like a more grizzled wizened voice and this song it makes sense that i really love that which is a jerry Bow that usually comes after space and that then i would also quite like this song but i mean he his voice sounds good but his voice pales in comparison to what i can only describe as an absolutely timeless guitar solo that he rips off at about the three minute mark i mean that is like the type of solo that i feel i mean anyone who's like skeptical i don't know why you would be but i'm sure there are some people who are like when okay here's an example when my dad was visiting to see bobby and the wolf bros i said just like offhand like yeah that's one of the things that makes just Jerry Garcia, one of the best guitarists of all time. And he was like, I didn't realize that people thought of him that way. Like, I didn't realize that he was considered one of the greats. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. And just he's like singular in his guitar playing. And the thing to me, like, what does someone's peers think about them? What do other guitar players think about Jerry Garcia? And it's Mm -hmm. pretty much universal that they praise his guitar playing. When you hear this solo, it is oozing with energy like he is like letting the notes really just like sit with like giving them space to like marinate and it's just so deliberate the way that he's playing it and it sounds just so damn good i mean i i just really 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 loved that just his guitar playing on this song
1: yeah again i I think it's beautiful i think we'd be remiss if we didn't Mentioned because we didn't, we haven't talked about him a lot in the show for reasons we've already talked about. But Phil stood out to me here with a calm but firm presence, like supporting Jerry through his uh, his opus in this show.
0: Yeah, agreed. I mean, everyone. It kind of is like they're all in a supporting function on this song, but they all play their roles perfectly well. So from comes a time. We have that one song break before the tease of the other one in space pays off and we get the other one right afterward. Now the other one, it's cool to hear it sounding good in the mid 80s and it does sound very good. It is just in such a different place than the last episode that we talked about it from 1972 when it was this monster, you know, 19 minute jam split up across between or on either side rather of an El Paso. Here it's what like four minutes long. It's very
1: short. Yeah, four or five minutes. Yeah, it, it goes from being like the the focal point, the the payoff in set two to kind of a supporting character. Yeah, which is um,
0: which is you know
1: tough, but it it's not different. Isn't always bad. And no. this is not bad.
0: I agree. Looking at other set lists from 85, as I was listening to more of this year for this show, it seems like this comes after space a lot and serves the same function. It's like a four minute, like cool musical moment. I wonder if the fact that drums and space now are a dedicated part of the set by the 80s leads to like less of a need for the other one to be that big anchor point In the second set jam That it was in the early 70s Probably Probably. So from there you go As as it should Back to cryptical Close out the that's it for the other one Sweet with the second part Of cryptical envelopment My only note here is two words long Love it it's just cool (laughs) I'm just glad to have it
1: (laughs) That's good Brent in particular stood out to me In this second half second part of cryptical but yeah a nice sweet little melody to transition us into a beautiful melody of Warfret.
0: yep this is uh it's just a super poignant song and it feels even more poignant at this point in the dead's history i feel like this is another song that's better for jerry's voice than a lot of the songs that came before it it just it just works And this is actually a song where I think that Brent's keys, his tone on the keys really works. There are moments in this song where I feel like each of the musicians has like a, like their part is my favorite. At the very end of the song, Bob's rhythm guitar is great. Very standout work from him. Around like the 615 mark, Jerry is going into like, I wrote down guitar theatrics like he's like going for it around that (laughs) point and he's killing it and Brent a little bit before that sounds really good Phil throughout I mean Warfrat, because it's kind of a bass heavy song he's just holding it down the whole time and the same goes uh for the drummers I didn't really make any notes about them but that could be a good thing or a bad thing (laughs) You know I think
1: I think it's a good thing overall with this show. What I noted about the drumming was that they weren't trying to do too much, which was good. so to that point, like they were not trying to overshadow Jerry and overshadow you know this this big ballad. They were just holding down what they could and and that that complemented this really really nicely.
0: Yeah, not that that was ever their mo. You know?
1: No, no, right, 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 right. Yeah, but the, like they give they give these like little flourishes a couple times in the first three or four minutes, where it was like, oh, that was nice, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a big strong snare roll. It was just like a little like a and then yeah, just a nice little flourish that that really um, paired well with what was going on. Yeah, and what I noted was the, the fly away portion of the song stood out just brilliantly i just that portion in this version was was so tight
0: yeah yeah i agree that's that's when bob's rhythm was really standing out to me during that part of the song
1: mm, yeah that's probably why yeah
0: yeah so from here we go into two very high energy songs to end the second set Got Around and Around into Good Lovin'. So that is that's the end of the second set, which again, as we said, continuous jam the whole way. It's not like there's a break after Warfront and then we go into those. We're right into it. Around and around, Brent switches to the organ, which I think sounds really good on that song. And I overall I think it's just kind of a fine showing for Around and Around. I didn't have a ton of notes.
1: It's fine. The organ solo at the end is the standout here. But uh, yeah, other than that, nothing special.
0: Yeah. I mean, around and around, they played a ton over the years. And so it's kind of hard, I think, for me to distinguish among like many versions of it. Good Lovin', you could probably say the same for, but I think that this actually sets itself apart. I think this is a pretty good Good Lovin'. Um, as far as, like, this is another song that was a Pigpen song and then became a Bob song. And the drumming is great. So there, in the beginning, there's just great drumming. There's, like, a bongo and a cowbell. There's a lot going on with the drum sound, but it sounds great. The thing that stands out to me about this one is the the rap that Bobby has toward the end, which I actually think is quite good.
1: Very like politically motivated, <laughs> yeah, but but kind rap.
0: Yes, I agree.
1: I was going to spring an unfair question on you. I was going to ask you how many times this song ended set two, because I think of this song as the like Bertha plus one at the usually in set one of shows.
0: 32 times is the answer. Who?
1: he's got it quick.
0: <laughs> well, because I thought the same thing, and so I looked it up. This song was played 533 times by The Dead, and it was only a set closer 32 times. So you're right, not a common set closer. Uh, in, additionally, though, um, it's funny that you say that, Dave, because Around and Around was the lead-in 74 times, which was tied for the most common lead-in with Bertha.
1: Bertha, there it is. Nice.
0: So that makes about a third, right, of the 533, 148 were either Bertha or Around and Around. So, Okay,
1: about a quarter?
0: Yeah. yeah. A little somewhere between a quarter and a third. So pretty common that you'd get Around and Around or Bertha leading it in, but not common that it would happen at the end of set two like this. I do think that the rap at the end of set two, like having that at the very end of the concert was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, just a, a good, good lovin'. It's interesting because the good lovins throughout Europe 72 when Pigpen is on in that tour are, like, phenomenal. And right oh, now we're yeah. in, in the middle of Europe 72, so both of us are listening to a lot of that music. And mm-hmm. so it is kind of, it does stand out a little bit just because it's so different. But that's that's not a bad thing. It's just kind of different and, and cool.
1: Yeah, like I said earlier, different isn't always bad. No. it's Yeah, it's neat.
0: Uh, the encore is something that's just not different in any way. It's USB an absolute <laughs> shock encore. And I mean, frankly, just a good, not great version. I wish Brent was singing more than he is on this song. I like his supporting vocals on this song and he's not really doing much. I do like his organ sounds on it quite a bit. And I think there's a, there's a lot of great work by the rhythm devils on this song. Billy and Mickey are doing, absolutely. they're doing really well. And Phil also is doing some cool stuff. I mean he he usually is. This is a good song for Phil because he's can have that kind of heavy bass that's in the backdrop of Jerry soloing, but I actually think that Jerry soloing is not super great. It's not it doesn't stand out really on this song. It's just a fine encore, but really not one that like captures your imagination in the way that other encores or even versions of this song do.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Um the two forty-five mark, band kind of figures it out a little bit, gets into a good bluesy jam. But yeah, other than that, just kinda just kinda average.
0: Yeah. All right, Dave. Let's bring it back home. So overall, I think I think a good second set, just a monster mega jam, basically. It lasts eighty minutes of this two and a half hour show, almost two and a half hours on the nose. And there are a lot of high points, I think throughout the second set throughout the show, really. I mean, I think overall it's a good show throughout the show. Yeah. Um, I
1: agree with you on the, there are a couple more high points in the second set than the first, but the first had some, the peaks were high, the Alabama getaway and the let it grow were high, high points. Um, I loved, this 85 show and the more i listened to it the more and more and more i found to take away to like it um i there are two reviews of this show that i want to read to you okay because i think i think there are some divisive points about 1985 so we'll start with the the bad
0: review okay
1: we'll start with the one star review
0: one star is just rude. Someone gave <laughs> it one star.
1: Yeah. So, well, I don't want to. I don't want to throw him or her under the bus. Yeah. But
0: make it an anonymous she, review.
1: Okay, an anonymous review for a one-star review. <laughs> Serious candidate for worst dead show of all time. <laughs> this is the most pitiful dead show I've ever heard in my entire
0: life. <laughs> <laughs> This person should, should get out more and listen to... This person needs to listen to more shows from 85, honestly. Okay, continue. <laughs> I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. They, did they call it Pitiful?
1: Yes, this is the most pitiful okay. dead show I've ever heard in my entire life. And the only reason okay. I'm here... Is because it was actually selected as the 30 Trips show for 1985? Hilarious! (laughs) This is the best of what 85 has to offer? The cryptical gives me nightmares.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god.
1: The cryptical gives me nightmares.
0: (laughs) It's <laughs> so melodramatic.
1: I'm not even going to finish the review cuz it's no, just that, more it's more of that shit. But oh that, my god.
0: Oh man. Oh man. Well, hey, listen, no one ever said that deadheads were an unopinionated bunch. Right, fair. So, let's hear the good one now.
1: So, from big trees, not big stumps. And that's stumps, sorry, with a z. Okay. A subject: Riverbend Magic 85. For 1985, it's five stars. What I recall is that everyone there had a magical evening. Storms were in the air. It was cooler than normal for a summer Cincinnati. And there was lightning in the sky behind the band during Let It Grow. Perfect vibe for that song. I also recall a tugboat pushing barges upriver, going behind the stage during He's Gone. All right, cool. I saw them 25 times. In nineteen eighty five, from coast to coast, and every show I thought it might be the last. The rumors about Jerry were out the tour were out to the tour followers and we treated every show with a feeling of dread and an urgency to see as much of it as possible. Get it while you can. I love that. Get it while you can. Cause it it was great. We got it while we could, and it was great.
0: Yeah, totally. I actually read that one. That was on the Internet Archive. I remember seeing it when I was listening to this show and I love the way that it starts which is for 85 this is five out of five stars because it's it can be hard I think with the Grateful Dead like you know I'm not trying to like make excuses or anything but like you do kind of have to handicap like by era you know it's like it would be kind of unfair to compare an 85 show to a 70 show or a 72 show it's a completely it's a literally different band and also they're at a completely different point in time their influences musically have changed a little bit they're who they are as humans has changed so yeah i think that that's a kind of a-, a good note to start to start it off on but yeah that's great uh it's interesting to hear what the what the heads were saying. I don't think the cryptical will give me nightmares. At least it hasn't so far, but uh, okay. I guess for no. one person out there, it's just haunting their dreams
1: for the record. I, I very much disagree with that one star review because it doesn't give me nightmares either, but yeah. wow, man.
0: Um. Okay. So I predicting your next question about which time I'm going to bring to my playlist. I'm just going to dive right mm-hmm. into that. I'm taking comes a time. So The reason why I want comes a time, I think that, um, I think that it, again, it's just a beautiful song, a great rendition, and it's kind of cool to have a Jerry ballad from this era that brings you into what the sound of the era was like. It would be interesting someday when we have enough songs that we've selected for our imaginary playlists for us to each try to structure them as a set, like as a show. And, and so now I've got my post-jam Jerry Ballad locked down. So that's, that's what I'm taking. Which one are you taking for your playlist?
1: I was torn between Let It Grow, Alabama Getaway, and Smokestack Lightning. Those three really stood out as just solid, solid, solid. And I think kind of for the same reason as you, like if we're going to structure this in some way, the just chalk show opener of Alabama Getaway. This is a fantastic Alabama Getaway. Let's let's get it out of the way. Let's put that as the show opener in this you know stru- imaginary structured playlist and on to the next one. So I'm taking the Alabama Getaway to start it off. It's it's really good, folks.
0: Nice, I like it. I think that's a good selection. I think all three of the songs that you identified were were really good ones and ones that I would were kind of floating around in my mind while i was thinking about which song i wanted from this playlist it pained
1: me to not take that smokestack lightning because it's
0: so good it is a really good one okay so last couple notes for us before we sign off thank you so much to everyone who listened and thank you to everyone who's been engaging with us on twitter uh, we've had so much engagement over the last couple of weeks and we've been loving it like talking to all of you there and sam on instagram so again if you have not yet done it uh, follow us on twitter at WorkingMan'sPod and on instagram working man's underscore pod also email us workingman'spod at gmail.com if you want to reach out to us that way we've had some nice emails and we've We'd like to hear from you too if you want to reach out to us. Devin Murphy, thank you again for putting us onto the show. We had a great time listening to it and talking about it. And um yeah, uh I think that's it, Dave. Anything else from you?
1: No. On that note, we will bid you good night. You
2: best, and I bid you good night. Good night, good night, good night. And the future's good night, good night, good night. That's it, that's good it. You, good you got it.